Let's go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Turn to the Christian scriptures to the second book of Samuel. Uh, we're going to explore today the concept of the kindness of God, and I'm taking a little bit of a risk in dividing this into two parts. Just going to give you a heads up. We're only going to get to verse one. Okay. <laughs> in the afternoon service, I'll cover verse two of chapter nine all the way through the end of chapter 10. Okay, so we're going to pick up the pace significantly, but this first sermon is going to set the stage. I realized I had so much that really... Um, we really needed to divide it so that we could break it into chunks. I think both messages are self-contained uh, messages, but I just want you to understand at the outset, lest you think, wow, is this going to be forever, um, you know, verse by verse kind of exploration of this story. One of the first books I read as a seminary student was a little booklet called The Religious Life of Theological Students. It may be 15 to 20 pages. The author sets out to encourage students of theology to develop both as scholars and as saints. I remember there were certain lines from that book that just jumped out and grabbed my attention. For example, why should you turn from God when you turn? Why should you turn from God when you turn to your books, or feel that you must turn from your books in order to turn to God? Ouch. You will never prosper in your religious life in the theological seminary until your work in the theological seminary becomes itself to you a religious exercise out of which you draw every day enlightenment of heart, elevation of spirit, and adoring delight in your maker and your savior. Now the author of those words is Benjamin Warfield, known commonly as B.B. Warfield. He was a well-known, highly respected, influential professor of theology at Princeton Seminary back in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Now, I knew Warfield, not personally, but I knew Warfield as a towering intellect, as a staunch defender of the faith, the author of books defending the authority of the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible against the attacks of modernism. What I didn't know was much about his personal life until recently. Dale Ralph Davis relates the following about his marriage. Warfield was pursuing academic studies in Leipzig, Germany, and he was also enjoying a honeymoon with his wife, Annie. And they were on a walking tour in the Hartz Mountains when they were caught in this terrific thunderstorm. It was so, it was, it was, it was such a thunderstorm, it's such a shock to Annie that she never fully recovered and she essentially became an invalid for the rest of her life. Warfield only left her for his seminary duties, but never for more than two hours. His world was almost entirely limited to Princeton and to the care of his wife, for 39 years. 39 years. One of his students noted that when he saw the Warfields out walking together, 
Quote, the gentleness of his manner was striking proof of the loving care that surrounded her for 39 years. Now, why is a story like that so heartwarming, so endearing, so inspirational, so encouraging? And I think it's because it portrays the beauty and the power, the warmth and the security and devotion of a covenantal relationship. It portrays, on the one hand, a fierce commitment and loyalty, and on the other hand, a gentle kindness and a deep, deep love. I think it also provides a compelling contrast to the culture around us. In fact, based on your experience, I think you would have been disgusted, but perhaps not surprised if I said, after Annie had this incident and became an invalid that Benjamin left his wife or neglected his wife to give himself to his theological studies. Like, oh yeah, that's just the way it works, right? People are people. But he didn't. 39 years of devoted, loving care. Now I think all of us, all of us want to be in a relationship like that if we were in similar circumstances, if we were the husband of a wife who took ill, we would want to be that devoted and gentle husband no matter what. And if we were the wife in that circumstance who were taken ill, we would, want, we would find tremendous strength and security in having such a loyal, dependable, devoted husband. It's helpful, isn't it, to have patterns and examples like a B.B. Warfield to inspire us and to give us a pattern to emulate. And the Bible is full of such patterns. God himself being the chief pattern, the one who revealed himself to Moses in these terms. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. But there are also human examples of God-like faithfulness and love. And we're going to look at one of those examples this morning and this afternoon in 2 Samuel 9 in the story of David and Mephibosheth. And what we'll see is that David's kindness, as it's translated here, David's kindness, his loyal love, his steadfast love is a portrait of God's perfect kindness, of God's faithfulness. And both of those serve as a pattern that will inform and inspire our steadfast love, our kindness, our loyal love. So let's begin here with chapter 9, verse 1, and David's inquiry. The chapter begins with David asking a question. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? So let's think about the context of that question. What has happened up to this point? Why is David at the point where he's asking that question? Well, look back at the previous chapter, chapter 8. Maybe you have at the top of your Bible a heading like I do, and it says David's victories. That's a good description because just like take a quick survey with me through chapter 8 and you'll see David's on a roll. Verse 1, 
David defeats the Philistines and subdues them. Verse 2, he defeats Moab, and the Moabites become servants to David and bring him tribute. Verse 3, David defeats Hadadezer, king of Zobah. Verse 5, the Syrians come to help Hadadezer, and David strikes them down. Verse 6, the Syrians become servants to David and bring him tribute. Notice the end of verse 6. Here's the summary statement. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Verses 9 to 12 describe all the silver and the gold and the bronze that David had amassed from all the nations that he subdued. Verse 13, David makes a name for himself. He strikes down the Edomites and they all become David's servants. And then look again at the end of verse uh, 14. You see that same summary statement. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. David is mowing down his enemies one by one. So now we come to chapter 9, verse 1, and David says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? David's asking a good question, right? Is there anyone remaining from the house of Saul? Because God had rejected Saul and tore the kingdom from him, giving it to David, and we, as we have read through this book, we have witnessed Saul's demise for quite a few chapters And then in 1 Samuel 31, the Philistines overtook Saul and his three sons and struck them down at Mount Gilboa. So we might think at this point, yeah, there's probably no one left of Saul's house. But why is David asking this question in the first place? Is David paranoid? Has David become like Saul, fearful and insecure? Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Or is he just on a rampage? He's just out to eradicate every trace of his enemy. I mean, I think if we're readers coming through chapter 8, right, where the theme is the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went, and David is mowing down his enemies one by one, it, it might seem like David's asking this question because he wants to scrub Saul's line out completely, wipe it off the face of the earth. I mean, that was the custom of the day among kings. What typically happens to the descendants of the former king, right? They get purged in the interest of political security and stability. And that's what, for example, that's what Jehu does in 2 Kings 10. He, he kills 70 of Ahab's sons, the former king. In fact, the very fact that David has to ask this question may be due to the fact that anyone associated with Saul has completely disappeared. They've made themselves inconspicuous and invisible. All that to say, maybe David is looking to finish off the job. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? And I think that's why there's such a beautiful and wonderful twist and surprise in David's inquiry Look at the rest of verse 1. David wants to know if anyone from Saul's house is left, not so he can eliminate them, so that he may show him kindness. Hmm. Now we need to spend some time unpacking this because this is really at the heart of chapter 9. David repeats his desire to show kindness to Saul's family again in verse 3. 
And then again in verse 7. So three times in chapter 9 you see this desire to show kindness to the house of Saul. So David's intention. I look at David's inquiry. Now let's consider his intention. It was to show kindness. Hesed. Some of you are familiar with that Hebrew word. What does it mean to show kindness to Saul's family? Well, we're going to see exactly what David had in mind as the narrative plays out. And we'll see that more this afternoon. But we can start with the Hebrew word itself. Every English translation that I looked at translated hesed here as kindness. And I think that's a good translation. But as you may know, the Hebrew word has this additional dimension of loyalty associated with it. In fact, if we've been reading 2 Samuel closely, we've already seen this word. So I'd like you to turn back to, actually go and turn back to the end of 1 Samuel. So look at the last chapter of 1 Samuel. And then we'll look at 2 Samuel chapter 2. So do you remember at the end of 1 Samuel when Saul dies, the Philistines cut off his head and they fasten his body to the wall at Bethshem. But the last three verses of 1 Samuel record what the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead did when they heard what those Philistines had done to Saul. So look with me at verses 11 to 13. The valiant men went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, with that in view, go to 2 Samuel 2 and look at the second half of verse 4. We're exploring what is it that David is intending to do when he says, I want to show kindness. Second half, verse 4, when they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who burned Saul, or buried Saul, which is what we just read, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this what? Yeah, that's, that's the word. Some translations have loyalty. You showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show you the same thing, steadfast love. Same word, and faithfulness. So the context surrounding this word here is clearly faithfulness and loyalty. And then David says, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. So I want God to do steadfast love toward you like I'm going to do steadfast love toward you because you did steadfast love toward Saul. This was an act of loyalty. So when David says at the opening of chapter 9, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? He's using a word that conveys the idea of loyal love or steadfast love. Yes, it's kindness. But it's also loyalty and faithfulness. And that becomes apparent when you look at the end of verse 1. Look at the motive. Like, if I said to you, why is David asking if there's anyone left in Saul's house? What's the answer? Because he wants to show kindness. But why is David wanting to show kindness to Saul's family? Answer, for Jonathan's sake. 
because of Jonathan, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And you may know, you may remember that Jonathan and David were the best of friends. But they had also entered into a formal agreement back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. So if you don't mind uh, turning again, we're going to do a lot of turning and looking at passages here. Flip back to 1 Samuel 20. After Saul tries to kill David, David flees and he goes to his best friend, Jonathan, who is Saul's son. And they devise a way to identify if Saul intends to kill David. In verse 8, David says to Jonathan, deal kindly with your servant. Okay, there's the word, deal kindly. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. So note the covenant language and connection. So Jonathan swears that he's going to let David know of his father's intentions toward him. And then look at verse 14. Jonathan says, if I'm still alive, show me what? Steadfast love. There's the word. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love. There it is again. From my house forever when the Lord cuts off everyone of David's enemies from the face of the earth. That sounds a lot like chapter 8, doesn't it? And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So do you see in that interchange the combination of both love and loyalty? Love, deep, deep love and commitment in this relationship. David swears. That's the commitment part. That's the covenant part. That's the faithfulness part. But he does so by his love. That's the relational part. That's the kindness part. So back to 2 Samuel 9. David's desire to show kindness to the house of Saul is the emphasis of this chapter. Again, it's repeated three times in the narrative. It's one of the ways we pick up on the emphasis of a biblical narrative is through repetition of key phrases like this. But now we understand why David is asking if there's anyone left of the house of Saul so that he may show kindness, and he wants to do that for Jonathan's sake. All right, so now let's just step back away from the narrative for just a second and glean some lessons from David's life. You know, David could have rationalized away the need to show kindness. It would have been very easy for David to come up with a multitude of reasons as to why he didn't need to do this at this time. He could have pointed to the clock. You know, that covenant with Jonathan, that was made 15 to 20 years ago. Who's even going to remember that? Who's even going to know or care at this point? He could have pointed to his circumstances. I mean, it was Jonathan's idea. It was made under some level of duress and pressure. I mean, what's David going to say in that context? And so he swears. He could have pointed to custom or just common sense. Like I said, it was customary to kill the sons of your predecessor to secure your own dynasty. 2 Kings 10. In fact, Jonathan seems to be acutely aware 
of this back in 1 Samuel 20. I don't know if you noticed. He said to David, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Right? That's what Jonathan is concerned about. He's asking David to spare his life. And think about the wording of 2 Samuel 3.1. It says, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So why would David, if he's exercising common sense and following cultural customary practice, extend kindness to the house of Saul, his enemy? It was a risk for David to show kindness to the house of his enemy. But here's another lesson. David's kindness exceeded the expectations of the covenant in 1 Samuel 20. Notice he doesn't say, is there anyone left of the house of Jonathan that I may show him kindness? What does he say? Is there anyone, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Right? But even in this is a fulfillment of a covenant promise that David made. So let me just read to you 1 Samuel chapter 24. This is the scene where David cuts off the corner of Saul's robe in the cave and he spares his life. Remember that? And, and, and Saul says to David in verse 20, Now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And yet David is not just saying, I get this, David is not just saying, is there anyone in the house of Saul that I may spare? He says, is there anyone in the house of Saul that I may show kindness to? What does all this mean? It means in the context of this historical narrative that David is a covenant-keeping king even when it may not seem to be in his favor to keep his promises. Clearly, this is the emphasis of 2 Samuel chapters 9 and 10. The Davidic king is characterized by steadfast love and keeps his covenant promises. But here's where I want to go with this for the remainder of our time together, and that is David's kindness that he wants to show to, to the house of Saul is simply an expression of God's kindness. Okay? So the Davidic king is characterized by steadfast love and keeps his covenant promises, but I would add to that, David is characterized by steadfast love, but he is also a conduit and a channel of God's steadfast love. What kindness You know, what kind of kindness is David wanting to show to the house of Saul? Well, verse 3 says this, Is there not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God? It's that kind of kindness. It's the steadfast love, the loyal love of God himself. David becomes a conduit and a channel of that because David himself has been the recipient of this kind of kindness, hasn't he? So the passage isn't ultimately in the end about David, is it? 
In chapter 9, David provides a stellar example of loyalty. And I think we should, I think we should emulate what David's doing here. And we'll talk about that. But, but in just two chapters, by the time you get to chapter 11, David is like the example you don't want to follow. He's the example of disloyalty. So if our eyes are fixed exclusively on David, we're going to be disappointed. This passage lifts our eyes from the kindness of David to the kindness of God. And maybe this is a good place for me just to sort of um, explain my thinking about these Old Testament narratives. I think, number one, that these Old Testament narratives are primarily a revelation of God. They're a revelation of God's character, who God is. And number two, they are a witness to what God has done in the personal work of Jesus Christ based on passages like Luke chapter 24. So what I'm going to try to do this morning is to draw out some of the correspondences, some of the, uh, the similarities that we see between what's happening here in 2 Samuel 9 that reflects something about who God is that is true at all times and all places and that has been especially put on display as God has expressed his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Um, it's kind of like one author said, God is always Godding, right? He is characteristically God. He's always God. He's always going to be characteristically true to himself. Kind of like my, um, since my wife isn't here, my kids will sometimes tease my wife that when she's going to say something really uh, important or significant or give some motherly instruction at the table, she'll kind of shift her silverware around and, you know, adjust her napkin and the kids all know it's coming. That's just, <laughs> that's just her characteristic approach. I don't have any of those. My kids have never tease me about anything that I do like that. Just my wife. Like, that's just the way she does it. And there's certain ways that God acts. It's just like, that's just the way God is. So the kindness of God in 2 Samuel 7 and 2 Samuel 9 and all throughout the Bible is, is the same kindness expressed in different ways in different situations. So that's what we're going to focus on, the truth about God. If you go back just two chapters, go back with me to Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. You'll see the stunning display of God's kindness to David. God has been faithful to David in verse 1. He's given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So verse 2, David wants to do God a favor, right? He wants to build him a house, a temple. And God says, essentially, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. In fact, it's going to be a forever kingdom, a forever dynasty. Why would God want to do this for David? In the midst of all the I wills of chapter 7, verses 8 through 16, describing what God is going to do for David and his descendants, there's only one self-description of God in the text that indicates the motive behind it all. What do you think it is? You can probably guess it at this point, right? Verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him. Okay, there it is. There's the, there's the motivation. It becomes more clear when you look at a psalm like Psalm 89 that picks up this note of God's steadfast love and just keeps playing it and playing it and playing it and playing it. Let me just read a portion of that psalm, Psalm 89. 
I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness. Notice the connection between steadfast love and faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So in the context of rehearsing the Davidic covenant... We have this note of God's steadfast love, his faithfulness, his covenant loyalty. This is the covenant loyalty that David received and experienced and enjoyed at the hand of God. And because these promises are made by a God of steadfast love, nothing can stand in the way of their fulfillment. David's death? Nope. Solomon's sin? Nope. The passing of time? No. The rise and fall of kingdoms like Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome? No. You see, that's, see, this is what we really need to know, right? This is the kind of relationship that we want to be in, a relationship that is characterized by trust, a relationship that is characterized by loving loyalty. It is a beautiful thing to be situated in a relationship of devotion and love. That God is going to keep his promises to us. That's what we need to know. But why would he do that? Why would God keep his promises to us? On what basis? Notice back in 2 Samuel chapter 9 that the basis for David's wanting to show kindness to the house of Saul was for Jonathan's sake. But in our case, it's not because of Jonathan. It's because of David. And not just David, but David's son. The son of David, Jesus, the Messiah, who fulfilled those covenant promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So just as God promised David an eternal kingdom in chapter 7, so God the Father promised Jesus, the son, a kingdom made up of followers called out by God and given to the Son as his rightful inheritance. Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 22, maybe you can just write down as a cross-reference, chapter 22, verses 28 to 30, Jesus tells his disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Now listen to this. Jesus speaking to his disciples, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. Jesus was assigned a kingdom by the father. That word assign means to legally place in the control of someone else. In other contexts, it's translated as covenant. It's like there's a covenant, there's an agreement between the father and the son that the son is going to receive a kingdom. And these disciples are also going to enjoy that kingdom. And this goes all the way back to Psalm 2, doesn't it? Where the Messiah relates, the anointed one of Yahweh relates the decree that was given to him by the Lord. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession, right? Jesus is the recipient of, of this covenant, this decree from the Father. 
And so this is why Paul can write in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So just, just as David wants to show kindness to the house of Saul because of his covenant with Saul's son, Jonathan, so God is desirous to show kindness to us because of his covenant with David's son, Jesus the Messiah. Now, this, my friends, is a genuine invitation of God's kindness. It's almost like, it's almost like God is saying, is there still anyone left of the house of Adam that I may show him kindness for Jesus' sake? Is there anyone left of the house of Adam, the sons of Adam? that I may show them kindness for Jesus' sake. And here's why I think that's important. You remember that surprising twist as we came out of chapter 8 and into chapter 9? David is mowing down all his enemies. Now he wants to know if there's anyone left from Saul's house. Why? Because we may think that he's about to destroy every last vestige of Saul's line from the face of the earth. You know, I think, maybe you're here this morning and you have struggled with the thought that God is, well, God is a moral monster, that God is a bully and a tyrant. And you've read the Bible, or at least you've heard about some of these things. You know, God expels Adam and Eve from the garden just for eating a piece of forbidden fruit. Genesis 6, God wipes out the entire face of the earth with a flood. God tells his people to completely exterminate the people living in the land of Canaan. God sends people to hell, a place of eternal torment, just because they didn't believe the message of Jesus. And on and on it goes. It's like, it's like God is on a rampage, right? It's like chapter 8, boom, 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 mowing down his enemies one by one until they're all gone. So when you hear God ask the question he asked Adam in the garden, Adam, where are you? When we hear that question, we hide in fear of judgment. If there's a God and the Bible is right, then he is certainly out to destroy us. And yet the same God who is just and punishes sin is also the same God who wants to extend his kindness or steadfast love to anyone who believes. When he says, Adam, where are you? He's asking so that he may show you some kindness for Jesus' sake. You're likely familiar with one of the most familiar verses, well-known verses in the Bible, John 3.16. That verse, written by one of Jesus' followers, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's the heart of God. Maybe you've heard that one before, but have you heard the verse that comes right after it? Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to do what? To condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, that's God's heart and that's God's posture toward his enemies. 
And yes, that's right. The Bible makes it clear that you are from, you and I are from the household of the enemy, the house of Saul, as it were. You're a son of Adam. And like the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the church at Rome, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The wages of sin, Paul says later in that same letter, is death. But it's like God looks around, as it were, and says, is there anyone left of the house of Adam that I may show kindness, steadfast love for Jesus' sake? That's why Paul ends the fifth chapter the way he does. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So my friends, this this is the wonderful matchless grace of God. This is the surprising, wonderful, superabounding grace and kindness of God on display to sinners like us. Now, as we finish up here, remember that there is this obligational component to God's hesed. There's loyalty in the love. And can you think of any relationships that you have where there are obligations that come with that relationship? Can you think of any relationships that have, a, that, that have this covenantal component where you need to carry out your obligations in love? Let me, just, let me just mention two. The first one you see on the screen there is the covenant of marriage. And I know not everyone listening to this is in that particular state, but it's important to recognize that those of you who are married have an opportunity in that context and in that relationship to put God's loyal love on display. There's a commitment to doing good for your spouse no matter how many reasons you can think of to get out of it. You can rationalize your way out of those obligations, but someone characterized by the kindness of God says there's this holy stick there's this holy grit that isn't just done out of stoic duty, but has this warm, um, this warm, compassionate, loving aspect to it. Does your marriage point others imperfectly? But does your marriage point others to that beautiful, wonderful relationship that anyone can have with God through faith in Jesus Christ? That secure relationship, the stability and the safety and the joy of being in a relationship with someone you can completely trust. They will never leave you. They will never forsake you. That is so beautiful. That is so counter-cultural. That's the kindness of God on display in a Christian marriage. I also think of the covenant of church membership. The church is a new covenant community. And many churches, like yours, has a formal covenant that members agree to and rehearse on a regular basis. Did you know you have a covenant? 
Okay, good. Uh, how important are those commitments to you? How important are those commitments to you? You ever find yourself saying, is there anyone of the house of Gateway? Now, I'm not suggesting that they're your enemies, okay, but <laughs> parallelism breaks down. But, but is, there, is there anyone of the house of Gateway that I may show kindness to for Jesus' sake? Right? Think about some of the particulars of your church covenant. So I had Pastor Greg email me this, and I just pulled out some, some sections. We solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another. Ah, there's a covenant relationship as one body in Christ. We will endeavor to encourage one another to grow in spiritual understanding. You're covenanting together as a body of Christ to encourage one another. How seriously, you know, when, when you came to gather this morning, how seriously are you taking those obligations? How significant is that covenant for you when it comes to your relationships with your brothers and sisters at Gateway? And I don't know this church. I assume you're doing very well in that area, but I want to challenge us to really um, ask ourselves if we are displaying in the context of church relationships the kindness of God that we see on display in 2 Samuel 7, the kindness that David himself is a conduit of in 2 Samuel chapter 9, the kindness of God that we see on display in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We will endeavor to contribute our energy, resources cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, to the expenses of the church, to the comfort of those in need. Is there anyone in the house of Gateway who has a need that I could show kindness to for Jesus' sake? We further endeavor to watch over one another in love, to seek each other's good, to remember one another in prayer, to help one another in sickness, distress, and discouragement, to build one another up through words and actions. That's a covenant kind of relationship. And a Christian who is characterized by the kindness of God is someone who is loyal to that covenant, but not just out of stoic duty. There's also a genuine warmth, a deep affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ that is part of the motivation to fulfill that on behalf of Jesus, for the sake of Jesus. And I know it's easy to rationalize away our commitments. You know, we don't live close to the church. Our family schedule is jam-packed. I would, but I don't know what my gifts are. I don't see anybody else taking these commitments seriously. I mean, there are any number of ways that we can rationalize away our obligations but even if the church didn't have a formal church covenant, the New Testament lays on us so many of these obligations via the one another commands of Scripture, right? We should be thinking, what relational obligations do I have and how can I show the loyal love of God to my brothers and sisters at Gateway for Jesus' sake? Love one another, John 13. Serve one another, Galatians 5. Bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6. Forgive one another, Colossians 3. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 5. Show hospitality to one another, 1 Peter 4. Pray for one another, James 5. Be kind to one another, Ephesians 4. Spur one another on to love and good works, Hebrews 10. Teach and admonish one another, Colossians 3. Build up one another, Romans chapter 14. Is that enough? Okay, get the idea? Like, like even if our church, like, I'm not a member, okay? Well, there are still 
obligations that we have because we are united to one another in Jesus Christ. And for the sake of Jesus, we commit ourselves in a devoted, loving way to carrying out these commands by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the work of Jesus Christ. God has been so kind, so loving, so loyal to me for the sake of Christ that I would like to extend and express his loyal, his loyal love to those around me for the sake of Christ. And how beautiful. I mean, imagine a church like that. Just take a second and imagine a church like that that is full of covenant loyal, deeply devoted, loving members. Like those, that, that's the kind of relationship that we want to be in, isn't it? The security, the dependability, the warmth, the affection. That's what a local church like Gateway can be by the grace of God. Like the Warfield marriage. People committed to one another in love no matter what. 39 years of devoted, loving care. So, as we end, we have seen David's intention to show kindness to the sons of Saul, because of Jonathan, that serves us as a portrait of God's intention to show kindness to the sons of Adam because of Christ. And all of that becomes a pattern for us in our covenant relationships. This afternoon, we'll finish the story of 2 Samuel 9 and delight together in God's loyal love toward us in Christ. Let's pray.